I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. What I wanted to express with this book is that even if you're not, you know, getting enlightened, like you can still get lighter. And that's something that's really available to all of us. Like even if we take a few steps forward um, on our path with whatever tools that can help us cultivate good attributes, um, you can set yourself up to have a lighter mind. And I think that's something worth um, aiming for and accomplishing. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today is the return of Diego Perez to the Meta Hour podcast. Diego is a meditator, speaker, New York Times bestselling author, known by his pen name, Young Pueblo. Young Pueblo means young people, which is meant to convey that humanity is entering an era of remarkable growth and healing, when many will expand their self-awareness and release old burdens. Diego is a practitioner of Vipassana meditation, as taught by S.N. Goenka. His writing focuses on the power of self-healing, creating healthy relationships, and the wisdom that comes when we truly work on knowing ourselves. Diego is the author of several best-selling books, Inward, Clarity and Connection, and his new release is Lighter, which comes out in October of 2022. Lighter is a radically compassionate plan for turning inward and lifting the heaviness that prevents us from healing ourselves and the world. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's always such a joy to be speaking with you. I know our last two conversations were um, some of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. So oh, I'm thank excited you so for this much. one. That's so great. Well, congratulations on the <clears throat> new book. How does it feel bringing it into the world? Um, it feels like a sigh of relief. I've been, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the hardest part is actually writing the book. So once that was done, um, it felt like, you know, I was almost there and now it's just doing the promotional work, um, of getting it out there. And now I'm excited for people to actually read it because, um, I hope that they find it useful. Like the last one, like Clarity and Connection. Mm-hmm. Did you write it during the pandemic, like completely? Um, yeah, during sort of this that second wave of the pandemic. So it was mostly written in 2021. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote it in chunks. You know, I, I would write like um, 10,000 words one month and then skip a month and then do another sort of like 10, 20,000 words. And um, so I was written over like an eight month, eight month period. I have a book coming out in uh, 2023 that was written. It's the only book I've ever written without any travel. Oh, wow. You know, where I wasn't like grabbing an hour in the morning when I was on my way somewhere. And and, uh, it's a very different experience, you know, I noticed. And I don't know what it's like to have a book now come out into the world as it is. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So you you were saying so you mean like when you were actually writing the book, you were in one place. I was in one place. I, I just wow. didn't travel anywhere. It was like that's never happened before. Yeah, that's why I would have to take breaks because I would, you know, I would be home for a month or so, then I would kind of be on the road and doing doing a few things. And that's normally just like cuts my creativity. Mm-hmm. If I'm like if I'm flying or moving from one place to another, I really personally need things to kind of slow down around me for me to really um, put out good work. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been in a room full. Of, we were just talking about this. I haven't been in a room full of people in two in some years. So, and you're actually going out with this book, right? Yes, I'm going to do three events uh, for Lighter, and I'm going to do one in New York City at the 92nd Street Y, um, one in San Francisco at uh, California Integral Studies Institute, Mm -hmm. and um, one in London at the Royal Geographical Society. And I'm excited because I I haven't been on the road since 2019 doing Mm -hmm. my own Mm -hmm. sort of my, you know, my own book book tour. Like I did one event for Soren for uh, Wisdom Mm 2.0 a few months back. And it was was a beautiful, small event. It was only about like 400 or so people. in Silicon Valley. And it was incredible, you know, and and it was funny because each speaker, when they would come out, um, they would all say, wow, I haven't been in front of so many people (laughs) in so long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Well, I know you're, you're very intentional with your work and I'm sure that this third book is certainly the fruit of that. So tell me what spurred this particular book, this topic, its format is different than that it's very, very personal. Yeah, but th- this one, it really, um, it's meant to hold all of my sort of major reflections and it includes my life sort of intertwined um, through all of these reflections as well. So I talk a lot about uh, my childhood, uh, how it was growing up, immigrating from, from Ecuador to the United States. I talk about my, um, you know, meeting my wife and how, our relationship was quite chaotic before we started meditating and how we slowly started building harmony. And this is all sort of mixed in with like my sort of uh, normal um, essay format that I've really grown to love. And the book Lighter, it comes from, um, you know, when I really just first started writing, I knew that I wanted to eventually have a book of essays that had everything that I thought that wasn't important about the healing journey. And as I, you know, developed my voice as a writer, as I put out my first two short poetry and prose books, um, something kind of clicked. And I spoke to an editor from Penguin. And if, you know, after speaking to him, it felt like the right time to just um, really give it a shot and put everything in one place. So I really, it, in a big way, it feels like I've been waiting to write this book since 2017. Mm. Here's a quotation from the book that's a great description. This book is meant as a bridge between the ideas of personal transformation and global transformation to show that the two are deeply intertwined and function in support of each other. An exploration of what is possible when compassion is scaled up from an interpersonal level to a structural level. So is that the the trajectory, the journey is experiencing, first experiencing compassion well, I don't know. Is it intrapersonally? Is it for yourself and then interpersonally and then to structure? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's basically the tone. Like the book really kicks off with my story. Um, and then it starts, it goes into uh, chapters about self, uh, self-love, self about healing, about letting go, emotional maturity, relationships. And then it slowly starts sort of moving outward. So it really hones in on the individual and what the individual individual goes through as they start embracing their own evolution as they start sort of moving through these deeper thresholds of insight. Um, and then it shows how these changes don't stay within you. They ripple outward and they start affecting the world. Um, and I've always thought that it was really important to connect the two together, especially with my background in activism um, mm-hmm. from growing up. Like I knew how how important it is to mobilize with other people and to try to um, make the world much more uh, humanistic to keep supporting human dignity so that we can all have the opportunity to flourish. And I knew from my own studies of history that that was always something that was missing, was that 
there were always beautiful people who um, would get together and have these wonderful ideals and they would actually sometimes be successful and they would gain power. But then power functions in a manner where it's like a magnet on the ego and it pulls out the roughest parts. So if you don't do your inner work to heal yourself or take steps forward on the path of liberation, then you're going to succumb to this trap that many people fall into all throughout history where they you know, fight, um, they try to change the world for a better place, they gain power, and then they end up recreating the thing that they were fighting against initially. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's missing um, from this idea of global change is connecting it with personal change, with personal transformation. And that w- that's really what gives me hope for this century is that there are millions of people around the world who are using Eastern modalities, Western modalities, indigenous modalities, and so on, um, that are actively healing themselves in a way that I think is just unprecedented. It's fascinating, really, because, you know, first um, thinking about these things, you know, and also reading this description and, you know, things that you've written and, and seeing, well, there is a path, you know, you start with, as I had just said, you know, you start with deepening some compassion for yourself and then you, you write so much, at least on Twitter, about relationship and, you know, and developing a different kind of relationship with another, which is founded on love and compassion in an unusual sense, not the conventional sense. And then and then the, the systemic or the global or the structural, as you call it. And, and then I thought, well, I know people, as you do, you know, clearly who are activists who start with the structural level. They care so deeply about others. And it, it feels insulting to suggest to them, it feels insulting that, to suggest that they care about themselves and that that's part of the equation that needs to happen. It's interesting. It could go in many directions. I think it is. And it, it is interesting because I, you know, I come from that world too, where it was like, let's focus on the world outside of us first. And mm-hmm. um, I think when you function in that manner, the result that you get is that you quickly fall out of balance. Um, and that's why there's such an emphasis this day on the internal and the individual and what's happening inside of your mind and heart, because those were the spaces that were ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think in the very early 2000s, like well, wellness was something that was just, you know, basically non-existent. And I think there were a lot of people out there meditating, but meditation has exploded in the last sort of mm-hmm. 10 years. It's mm-hmm. become so much more popular and um, I think it's, it's sort of reaching this new um, sort of critical mass. And it's exciting to see because obviously like we still stumble on the way and we're all still learning to respect the traditions that we're starting to find, you know, a lot of use in and a lot of healing in. But I think overall, the, um, it's going to make a very positive effect on the world that people are turning that lens inward and they're realizing that they can be more compassionate towards themselves, that they can have a deeper relationship with their emotional history, that they can start just navigating their own sort of internal forest and understanding um, what's happening in there so that they can build self-awareness. And that's why I like to you know, focus on the individual, also focusing in on, on the relationships that we have, whether they're intimate relationships or friendships, because a lot of what happens in intimate relationships and friendships, that's really what society is sort of built out of, is that that's like our, you know, first there's one, then there's two, and then, and then there are many. And mm-hmm. um, then going outward and talking about the community as well. But it, um, it feels really important to just not erase the individual and to understand that if we do have a good sense of self-love, the type of self-love that actually opens the door to unconditional love for all beings, then that's a good foundation to build on. Well, society on the systemic level, you know, so often tells us stories about who we are and what we deserve and, you know, what we're capable of and, and all of that. And then it takes a lot of wherewithal to explode that story and not to just take it in and believe it and and to say, no, you know, like there's so much more uh, I can experience. There's so much more I'm capable of in terms of compassion, for example, or love or generosity or 
presence or um, and to insist on that, you know, is is a lot. I feel like when I have interviewed activists, whatever their practice is, as you say, there's such a wide array of ways of going within and, and establishing a different sense of who we are. Um, no matter what their practice was, I found that as a common thread. Like they did that, you know, that they, they turned around because so many of them are working in a way that's fairly alone or where uh, in, in some cases, even their families were saying, well, don't do that. You know, like you're going to rock the boat, you're going to end up with nothing and just be very careful. And, and they couldn't just be careful. They had to do something. And it wasn't ever just for them. You know, people would say to me, I look, I look at younger people. I look at this next generation of people, say, going to work in fast food restaurants. And, and I think they can't, you know, we're not surviving. They can't survive. And I deserve more and they deserve more. And so then they would, they would take action. Yeah. And I think um, that, that feeling that we get from the people around us where it's like, don't rock the boat. Um, it's pretty common, right? Because we want to feel safe and we want to yeah. understand what's, you know, we, we we want what's normal to us and we want essentially what our perception already knows. It just wants its own perception repeated over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that if we really want to build something new, if we want to have something like structural compassion, then we have no other choice but to do both simultaneously. Like we have to actively heal ourselves and we actually have to then use that new vibrancy that a lot of people feel once they start their healing process and they can take that energy to um, to the groups that they're a part of and ask themselves like how can my community change or how can my workspace change mm-hmm. or how can I you know redesign something that I really care about and a lot of these things like it doesn't require like every single person to be focused on the same issue but if a lot of people are sort of developing themselves enough to understand that, oh, it's actually not worthwhile at all for me to hurt another person, whether mm-hmm. intentionally or unintentionally, directly or indirectly. And if more people are saying no to harm, then what's left is goodwill. Mm. Lovely. And I wonder if uh, we can just take a moment and define terms because we're both using the word healing and it's a big theme in the book. And I'm curious what your working definition of healing is. I think um, to me, healing is um, decreasing the intensity of the reactions that you experience. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the sort of mental turmoil that we feel comes from just very intense reactions um, and sort of reactions that have been accumulated over time um, where, they're the type of reactions that, you know, whether if, if it's a reaction of anger or anxiety or whatnot, they're, they're, they're reactions that are meant to help you survive, but they're not going to help you thrive. And especially those, you know, people who've felt a lot of trauma or, or carry a lot of old hurt, um, when they start healing themselves, the, they notice the difference and their minds actually start feeling lighter when the reaction that they're experiencing is not quite as strong as before, or it lasts not as long as it used to. And they're able to sort of regain that sense of clarity. Um, and I think to me, that's that's healing. And then another term is authenticity, which is interesting because sometimes, um, you know, it, it can mean so many things, including a kind of a wholeness or integrity, which, I, you know, I'm sure is what you're, you're meaning. But it can also mean, you know, like uh, just just a lack of tact, you know, like that guy's an idiot, but he shows it unreservedly, <laughs> you know, or mind who he hurts because he's so authentic. He just says what he feels, you know, or something like that. It can be very different than that. Yeah, uh, to me, authenticity, um, I mean, when I when I was growing up, to me, um, the, the way it was defined to me is that someone is authentic if they stay the same throughout a many, you know, a long period of time. And what I've learned is that um, the type of identity or the framework of identity that is most going to support your happiness is a flowing sense of identity, a sense of identity that um, embraces change, that allows you to evolve as time moves forward. So to me, what's authentic is not your first reaction or your first thought. It's usually what comes after that, after you give yourself a moment 
to say, you know, how do I actually feel? Not how does my past feel? Not how does my defensiveness feel? Not how does my survivalist reaction feel? But how do I genuinely want to show up in this moment? So to me, um, authenticity is all about slowing down and reconnecting with how do you actually want to show up in this moment? And so that's why it's connected to radical honesty, yes? Yeah, totally. I mean, and radical honesty, um, to me, it's not about sort of telling other people what you think. It's about telling yourself what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's just another word really for self-awareness because um, you can't really be self-aware if you're lying to yourself. But that's why radical honesty was a term I wanted to use because what I found was that I was lying to myself constantly. So mm-hmm. what I needed as a remedy was just honesty. And I needed that lens to be really focused inward so that I can catch myself before I would try to, you know, basically wrap myself in another narrative that would hide me from the truth. I was having a discussion the other day with someone about the paramis, the, the 10 perfections or, oh, yeah. you know, qualities that um, is is uh, really kind of in the essence of the Buddhist teaching. And, and one of the reasons I love that aspect of the teaching so much is that the paramis, which are like, you could say, virtuous qualities, like mm-hmm. generosity, morality, equanimity, loving kindness, um, truthfulness, uh, resolve, things like that. They form both the inner and the outer descriptions of, of what we're developing. So if you're in a traffic jam and you're developing patience, that counts, you know. That's patience. And then it's almost like the wherewithal, the reservoir of patience within you is that much stronger when you're doing inner work, when you're sitting in meditation, or if you practice generosity externally, uh, you give away something material, or you listen to somebody, or you smile somebody, or you you thank somebody. Um, That's all external. But then the next time you are meditating and, and there are these this barrage of thinking and you need to let go of the thoughts. That's an act of generosity, that yielding, that um, letting go of grasping, allowing things to arise and pass away. That's all the kind of generosity as well. And so they feed one another. So that's one of the reasons I really love that context of the Parmes. And um, in the 10 qualities or the 10 attributes, there is morality. And then there's a separate one for truthfulness and, so that was the conversation I was having with somebody like, why? You know, it counts within morality. It's a big, right, right speech is a big part of that examination of, of morality. And why is truthfulness so special? Why is it separated? And all I could say was um, maybe it's about not lying to ourselves, you know, and being more truthful with ourselves. And so it counts twice. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you brought up the paramis too, because I've been – sort of trying to, like, I've been noticing a tendency within myself to, you know, when I get really busy and I haven't been to a meditation course um, in a number of months, I feel like, oh, you know, I need to get back in there. But I'm trying to sort of get rid of this um, division that I've built up in my mind where, you know, Mm -hmm. that the Dhamma happens in courses or it happens when I'm sitting down. But the Dhamma is happening all the time. There's yeah. always opportunity for Dhamma. There's always opportunity yeah. for me to grow. And um, and especially in regards to the paramis, like the Buddha would be born in times, like before the Buddha was the Buddha, he was born in times often where there was no Dhamma. And all mm-hmm. he could do were practice the paramis. Like he was just practicing how to be kind, like how to be compassionate, how to be loving, how to tell the truth. Like all these sort of um, attributes of our character that are that are often uh, weak and that we need to intentionally cultivate. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've been trying to bring into my daily life and just show myself, oh, right, this is like, look, there's this great opportunity here to give or this is great opportunity to have patience or have tolerance or have strong determination. And um, that reframing has been quite helpful. Yeah, I think it's essential. And that's why I love the Parmes also and why it's been a very impactful context for me because we're not always on retreat, even when I can remember when those were the happiest times of my life. And it's yeah. not always, it's not always that way. Yeah. When the, when the mind's pristinely clear. Yeah. Really. <laughs> nothing to do. You know, yeah. <laughs> let me just walk from here to there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great, but uh, it's not always the case. Um, so let's talk a, a 
Another kind of concept is letting go, which is one of the core skills that's in any meditative technique. Uh, You have a lovely definition of letting go in the book. Letting go is essentially a profound acceptance of the present moment. And that's really interesting because sometimes we think of letting go, it's almost like being angry at something, you know, and we're going to hurl it away. So I'm curious about how you came to approach this as a practice because I think it does take quite a bit of skill. Yeah, it sort of it dawned on me over time that when we want to deeply heal ourselves, um, like the past is is gone. Like there, there there are sort of like energetic remnants of the past that we carry into the present with us. But if we want to deal with a lot of the, you know, like the reactions of anger, or reactions of fear, or reactions of anxiety, or whatever it is that's sort of really weighing down your mind, when they appear in the present moment and you are able to respond to them skillfully, you're able to hold space for them and you're able to sit with them. And whether you have some, you know, uh, things that are given to you by your therapist or or a type of meditation technique that could help you hold space for yourself, um, there is healing happening in the present, but you're actually healing your past. Like, because you can't go back there. Like, I think sometimes people also think of letting go as, an imaginative process where they're like reimagining different trauma points or reimagining different, like, you know, whatever struggle it was that happened. But the tricky thing is that memory is really fickle. Like it's really unreliable. Mm -hmm. But what you can rely on is how you feel in the moment. Your feeling is distinct. It's clear that you can feel what anger feels like. You know, you can feel what all this spectrum of emotions feel like. So when you're able to come in contact and accept what's happening, I think you're actually deeply unloading the past. It's so great. And it brings me to the question about practice. Um, You have a section in the book about finding your practice. And, uh, you know, as much as we both were appreciating the paramis, which is sort of the expansion of what practice means into all of life so that all of life comes in a way our canvas is we are creating a different vision of what a life can can look like. Nonetheless, you know, for me, I think that has absolutely depended on having a regular, formal, dedicated period of however long each day um, where I am only concerned in that period of time about the deepening of qualities like mindfulness or awareness or compassion and other things, of course, may intrude constantly, but that's not my intention when I sit down or walk or whatever it might be, you know, in terms of posture for me. But um, do you think some kind of formal practice is necessary? Totally. I think we need to take advantage of this historical moment. I feel like a lot of us who are born now, we're immensely fortunate. Um, I mean, personally for me, like I think, of course, we have these really daunting challenges in front of us, right? Historically, yes, there are, you know, climate change, um, all these nuclear weapons that are in the world. Like there are, you know, so many challenges in front of us. Um, But at the same time, like if you ask me, I'd rather be born now than in 1840. Like Mm -hmm. I'd rather be born now than in like 1670. You know, like to me, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm glad I'm here now. Let's face the challenges in front of us skillfully. But at the same time, like, how is it that when we have um, such serious challenges in front of us, we also have all these magnificent tools that can not only help heal us, but can actually unlock this inner creativity and help us look at old problems and solve them in new ways? So, not just for the um, for the sake of you know to help improve the world, but for your own sake, for you as an individual, for you to overcome misery, you know, doing that through one of the uh, teachings of the Buddha or one of the paths that the Buddha has laid out or through other methods. There are just so many other different beautiful meditation traditions that can provide you with so much well-being or outside of that, even if meditation is not your thing, like having a therapy practice or having, having something that helps you engage with your inner world I think is critical and it's literally the best investment that you can make in yourself as an individual because that's going to improve all other facets of your life and it's going to help you 
decrease the misery that you cause yourself. But um, sometimes I feel like a broken record because I, I am just like constantly, you know, when I get an opportunity, I'm like, you should get a practice, like whatever mm-hmm. it is. Like, you know, you don't need to do what I do, but, you know, if you want to, like, you know, go to dharma.org, you could do that there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's just so much out there. And that's one thing that I love too, is, you know, being friends with you and being friends with Jack and also seeing like the new generation of uh, meditation teachers that are coming up mm-hmm. that are in their mm-hmm. 30s and 40s. And, you know, I have friends in like all these different traditions and it's beautiful seeing the way that different people, depending on their own conditioning, will connect with different things. And that's okay. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. That's something that should be supported. And I think the advice that I often give people is find something that not only connects with you intuitively, but is something that will challenge you. Like it should be hard, but mm-hmm. it also shouldn't be overwhelming. You shouldn't get like totally overwhelmed by it. You should find that sweet spot where it's hard enough that you are becoming stronger um, and you'll make progress. It's really beautiful, you know, to hear you and uh, to know you, but, you know, because I know there's even research on the efficacy and there is some, you know, of mindfully sweeping your room and mindfully having a cup of tea and things like that. And it can make a difference in the quality of your life. But I usually respond to that by saying, that's like trying to do something the hardest way possible. You know, <laughs> it's like, why do that? You know, like, it's hard to remember unless you're, I mean, the people I know who did that, honestly, most successfully were women in India who were in miserable, you know, family situations and weren't allowed to go off and re- retreat or even meditate probably in a corner, you know, and they had no choice. That was their practice because that was the only practice they could have. And they, they did it, you know, whereas I know, for myself, would I actually do it with that kind of rigor and intensity and wholeheartedness? Probably not, you know. <laughs> It'd be like a story I tell, you know, like, yeah, you know, you can be mindful, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You don't have to sit, but I need to sit. I, I mean, I've just seen that. And I also um, come down on the regularities. And I agree, you know, it could be uh, journaling. It could be any kind of introspective practice that unites us with our inner worlds so that we can actually observe it. Um, uh, I, wa- I wanted to say to just jump in. I yeah. think that's one. Of, you know, we. I think in every podcast that we've talked, and we've always mentioned Deepama. Yeah. But it seems like a good time to mention her again. Um, that's why I have so much love for her because she is creating accessibility for the practice. Like this mm-hmm. incredible, like there are these. You know, in reading the book about her, um, you know the way that she would teach, like mothers who were breastfeeding or mm-hmm. pregnant women, people who were, who, you know, were so central to the household and they were so busy, but then these people were still, still had access to Nibbana mm-hmm. because of her. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was something that, um, I, I think it's just beautiful because there, it really depends on your conditioning and also depends on like how much you've built up your paramis and how mm-hmm. much work you've done before this lifetime, because there are people who just come ripe and they only, you know, they, have very busy lives, but at the same time, like a wonderful teacher like that can see them and help them overcome the tiny bit of dust that they have remaining over their eyes. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought her up because now I can just dwell on thinking about her for a few moments, which is <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. Cause the other thing um, that is striking to me is the idea of regularity. And for me, and that partly came from teachers like her who was, she was mysterious, you know, because she'd suffered so much and she was so loving and so kind and so compassionate. So you'd think in a way she was like a wimp, but she wasn't. She was so insistent. Like if you did a retreat with her, there were no naps. Yeah. You know, yeah. you had to put yourself <laughs> out there to maximum, maximum wholeheartedness, which was right and, and important. And, um, you know, that stayed with me in that, like I, I talked to neuroscientists say who, you tell me that in terms of their labs and their findings that uh, we only have to practice formally, let's say sitting. Um, I think it's like 13 minutes a day, three to five times a week. And I say, well, first of all, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum. Yeah. <laughs> Second, you know, <laughs> it's like for me, I know myself, you know, like three to five times a week is not going to happen. You know, if it was every day, it's every day, but 
if it was three to five times a week, it'd be Monday. And I think I'll start on Wednesday. Then it's Wednesday. <laughs> and I think, I'll do it three times on Saturday. Then I'm done because I never do it. But every day is every day. And so we need to support ourselves and find the support of friends who will help us actually put a practice in place. Yeah, I think it's um, it's funny. Like two two more thoughts are coming up. Is that um, like the way I told you? I think two a year or two ago, the way that that book um, just always makes mm-hmm. rounds. And yeah. I recently had a friend over, um, and she wanted a, a book recommendation, and I gave her the Deepa Ma book. And you should have seen her like the two weeks after while she was reading the book, like. She was so lit up, like so inspired. And um, I think it's so, it's powerful the way that she brings like gentleness and strength to the practice. Um, Because like, to me, like she's like a a titan of Dhamma. Like she just, she's this immense figure in my mind. Mm -hmm. And um, when, like in particular, there's that one story, it's a short one in that book where she's talking to Joseph and she's telling him to meditate for two days. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, you know, you know, um, the two days, that, like that a two-day retreat, that's, you know, that's normal, that's fine. And she's like, no, 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 I want you to meditate for two days. And when he realized that she meant to meditate for 48 hours, yeah, yeah. and he was like, oh, that's too long. And, she, and her response to him was something like, don't be lazy, Joseph. Yeah, and yeah. and that, that, that kills me. Like, I remember that during retreats sometimes, because like, um, you know, like if you're in a 45 day retreat or something like it's long days, like long days, you're meditating 12 hours a day, every day, you know, like during the whole retreat. And, and there are these moments of, um, of, you know, you're, you're sort of tired or there's a lot of stuff that's burning. A lot of conditioning is burning away in that moment. So your mind feels particularly heavy. But when you think of, um, you know, I mean, I mean, Deva Ma was a liberated being, who was obviously part of the sangha, you know, so she, she didn't have, she didn't take robes or anything. But um, I think one of the ways the sangha is defined as anybody who's a sotapanna or beyond. Um, so I, you know, thinking of her as like, it's just really riveting and kind of lights you up. Well, she was an amazing being. So we are very lucky, you know, and that brings me to the thought about lineage. Um, well, Joseph used to say, it always was remarkable to him that like nobody could run a four minute mile. And then all of a sudden one person does. And then all these people can. Right. That somehow what was inconceivable remained inconceivable until one person did it. And once we see that there's something in us that responds. It says in the deepest level, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, not verbal on cognitive necessarily, but so deep inside that says, yeah, look at that. It can be done. I think it's so true. It's um, it's quite powerful. I think the way that we like inspire each other as like a a Dhamma family, and and this is like one of the things that I wrote about in the book, right? Like normally when I when I write the things that I write online, um, they're they normally regard to conventional life, and like I'm I'm personally deeply inspired by the Buddhist teaching, but um, but I don't sort of sit down and explain the Buddhist teaching. Like I like to talk about, you know, personal transformation, mm-hmm. I like to talk about relationships. And so even though, yeah, the, a lot of um, the Buddhist teachings like have inspired some of these thoughts, um, they're not dictating what the Buddhist teachings are. So, but in the, oh, you know, it took a moment to explain in the book sort of my ideas about healing versus liberation and how healing and liberation they travel alongside each other for a while. Like I think they, you know, they can move together for a while, but liberation goes a lot deeper, you know, where healing can decrease the intensity of a reaction that was once causing you a lot of mental tension. Um, liberation goes a lot further in that it will eradicate all suffering, you know, mm-hmm. that it will eradicate all the craving that causes you sort of all mental tension, all dissatisfaction, and that essentially ties you to life and death. And um, I think being sort of very honest about that, you know, I had to really just give people a taste of like what my own practice is like to mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. say, you know, like, I know I write about healing, but I, and I went to meditation, like I went to S.N. Goenka's courses for healing. But then as time went on, 
as I listened to him more closely, as I started reading Dhamma books, I realized that the Buddhist teaching made sense, that there was the opportunity for liberation here. And, um, and I think that was just such a powerful moment in my life that I had to find a way to sort of weave into um, this book that's based mainly about healing. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about kind of heavy emotional states because it really takes its own kind of toolkit to navigate states like anger and fear and jealousy and hatred, whether it's directed primarily at ourselves or in relationship to another or the world in general. And there's often a desire, I think, for many meditators that it's this picture, you know, that once we have an established meditation practice, it's all going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> we don't feel these things anymore. And, but emotions, those kinds of emotions are so human and it seems so normal. You feel frustrated when someone cuts you off in line or, <laughs> or when you see someone being treated poorly. So how do we develop enough kind of emotional intelligence so that we can see what's happening inside of us and have it in perspective so we don't get lost? I think that's one of the really powerful things about being intentional in cultivating emotional maturity, because to me, emotional maturity is the ability to feel an emotion without feeding it. The ability to just, you know, have a little fire inside of you that's burning with anger without throwing more fire onto it so that it doesn't become a blaze. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take over your actions. It doesn't cause you to start projecting onto all the people around you and start creating these like unnecessary argumentative narratives. Um, but I think for people, you know, it really comes down to their their own practice that can help them come back to themselves. Like for me, like I feel really fortunate to have um, a, a meditation practice. It's been I'm only ten years into being a meditator, and um, you know, being in, in Goenkaji's tradition, and I feel really fortunate now that like I, you know, I have sadness, I have anger, I have all the emotions that everybody else has. But what I have now is, is a tool that can help me deal with these things in a manner um, that feels a little more efficient than before I started meditating. Because like you're still like life and the waves of life, they're not going to stop. Like mm -hmm. once you start meditating, once you start your healing process, once you start really embracing your own evolution, life is still going to suck at times. There's still going to be <laughs> moments of loss. There's still going to be moments of heartache. There are still going to be, you know, moment, moments of serious challenge. And, and even in between all of that, there's still going to be simple ups and downs where some days you'll just wake up really tired or some days you'll be grumpy and there won't be like a dramatic cause, you know, it won't be necessarily tied to like how, you know, what happened to you when you were a child. Maybe it's just tied to something simple like, you work too hard the day before, so you woke up tired. But what you do get from having a practice is that you have a way to respond to how you feel in the moment that's much more productive, that's much more helpful to you so that you're not just um, getting caught up in identifying with what you're feeling and you can just more easily understand that this is another temp you know, temporary thing and that it'll pass. I guess what uh, we're referring to is the way we deal with difficult emotions would in conventional terms be called mental health, right? Right. It's not the complete eradication or absence of these emotions, but what's our perspective and, and how balanced can we be nonetheless? And can we be somewhat kind to ourselves even in the face of you know, our anger and fear and so on. And, and that's what we call mental health, which is, we have a new mantra around here, which is mental health is not that high. You know, it's just <laughs> like people are struggling, you know. And, uh, yeah. You know, they're coming back to retreat, but it's not that easy necessarily to leave home. And uh, for some people, it's not that easy to leave the apartment. And I, you know, literally have not been with gatherings myself. And uh, I, I imagine it kind of, dis-ease when I begin again. Should I begin again? You know, like, there are people in the room, <laughs> a lot of them. You know, like, it's hard. Yeah. When, um, and that does, does the gatherings include also not um, leading retreats for you? I haven't, I haven't led a retreat uh, in person, no. Mm. 
yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting feeling. I when I first went out there um, for Soren's event for Wisdom 2.0, yeah. I think that was in April or May. I forget. Um, but it was strange. It was strange yeah. being around yeah. a lot of people. And what was what was cool about it was that um, there was just so much excitement to be in physical community. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and I've seen that. You know, like I've throughout the pandemic, I've been really fortunate to um, to go to retreats and to you know to be meditating with other people, even though the retreats were smaller. And obviously, there was like so much protocol to mm-hmm. keep everyone safe. Um, but we would have these, uh, meta days where after the retreat was done, you know, we're all actively extroverting and speaking to each other. And it was just so cool to like meet new people. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that during the pandemic, like I was just with my same group of friends and my family. And it was, you know, always in these really tight, tiny pods. And I like, haven't gotten to, you know, feel that, that incredible feeling of when you meet a new friend. That's a really beautiful thing to say. It's really interesting because it's absolutely true. And unless you're really, really good at Zoom, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I've met all these people on Zoom. <laughs> no, it's it's really true. I mean, for all of us, it's it's transition time, and so uh, it does. I think hopefully for the people who do have tools, they they have confidence in uh, about balance that help them pause, for example, or, or remember just not to leap into a reactive state and mm-hmm. to forgive themselves for what they're feeling and um, understand it. we're never, it's never just me, you know, it's never ourselves alone. It's always a kind of more universal response moving through us and uh, somehow navigating this time so that we actually re-engage in maybe a better way than we were engaged to begin with. Yeah, and I think it's um it's quite it's I think it's tricky, but um it seems that like people are, you know, I I understand the frustration, like so much time being apart from each other that yeah. people are so excited to be out and um and it's still, you know, it's still tricky because it's not it's not totally safe. Yeah. But um but I think everyone, you know, the individuals are measuring their own risk because at the same time like I understand the need to live. It's really true. I think when you use the word, it just struck me, you use the word lighter. And uh, many times we use the, the term spacious. It's kind of the same thing, you know, that if you're not locked into your reactions, as an example, but you can more see them, um, the, there's a feeling that there's, there's space, there's spaciousness, and that what was once maybe very heavy and solid seeming is more feather-like, you know, or, yeah, or gauze-like yeah. even. And and so it's all maybe happening, but we experience it quite differently. And, and uh, the you know, and in the Abhidharma, in the Buddhist psychology, they talk about buoyancy of mind and those qualities that are about being lighter, you know. Mm-hmm. You're almost like bouncing when you walk uh, because it doesn't feel like such a burden. But it's all about relationship. It's about relating differently to what's arising. Oh, that's fantastic. I haven't heard about buoyancy of mind. I haven't no. started studying the Abhidhamma yet. Yeah. Um, but if you have any good books, please send them my I way. Will. <laughs> I, <will. laughs> um, I wanted to say too, in regard to the word lighter, like I um, I realized that I started using it often um, in my writing, even before I started writing the book Lighter, because when I first started meditating, like my mind just felt heavy. Like mm-hmm. I've, I, it felt so, so dense and heavy and almost like concrete, like, and I remember I, um, when I like first did my, my first 10 day course, like I, I literally, like when I came out, like I felt like I, like my mind lost a hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Like, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how else to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I kept going, like, and I think this was, became clear, like, especially during the longer retreats that like a lot of times we sort of function on this concrete, like a, as if we're walking on this concrete layer of conditioning, like all this old conditioning that we've accumulated and we live our lives as if like that's normal, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just normal for my mind to, to, to be heavy and to be so tied into these particular set of habit patterns. And that's kind of what it, what you have to work with. But 
when um, you know you're you're on retreat and you spend time just kind of chipping away at these layers, and they just just keep burning away, burning away, and you come out and you realize, and you're like, whoa, like I feel so much lighter, and it does um, it does align with the word spaciousness, the way you were describing it. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I, I, the other reason I like the word lighter too is that obviously I think um, enlightenment is a real thing. Like I think it's totally possible mm-hmm. to to get up there and you know be like the Buddha or be like Jesus or you know be like one of these sort of Titanic figures of history. Um, and people do it. You know, it's still it's still possible today. People are still um, reaching different levels of enlightenment. But what I wanted to express with this book is that. Even if you're not, you know, getting enlightened, like you can still get lighter, and that's something that's really available to all of us. Like even if we take a few steps forward um, on our path with whatever tools that can help us cultivate good attributes, um, you can set yourself up to have a lighter mind, and I think that's something worth um, aiming for and accomplishing. There's also an association which just struck me now between lighter is, you know, more buoyant and uh, lighter is emitting light. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. Which is wow. beautiful. I mean, we used to say, you know, I don't even know. Did you ever actually meet Goenka in person? No, no, I've never met Goenka G in person. Oh, well. Well, like, of course, he was my first teacher, which was like a thousand years ago. <laughs> and so we, we used to say, uh, not only did he, he sort of walk like he could float in the air, but... Um, we used to say things like uh, there's like radiance coming out of its skin, which there was. It was like the light of compassion <laughs> was coming out of it. It's like you could see this light, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and it was I'd never met anyone like that before. That's funny. I um I had a an experience where so during my first course I I did it in on Alaska, Washington, um, at Goenkaji Center there mm-hmm. and. The teacher who was conducting that course, like I remember, and this is me, like you know, ten years ago, I was like twenty-four, and I was super doubtful, like the whole time, just so much doubt. And but I remember watching this guy when he would walk to the Dhamma Hall. Um, I remember thinking, like, this guy's barely touching the ground, mm-hmm. like he's barely, like, <laughs> he is so light, like he just seemed. Um, I don't know, like the like like he he had this quality of weightlessness that mm-hmm, I, I remember mm-hmm. watching him and being like I remember describing it to my wife. I'm like, I'm like, babe, this guy was barely touching the ground, and I I don't even really know what that meant, but it kind of clicked now hearing you talk yeah, about that. Yeah, I'm gonna find you an Abhidhamma book for sure, you know, because it's right there. It's like buoyancy. There's another word like buoyancy, but it's not that they have two of them. You know, they pair them up. Oh yeah, please do. Yeah. I'm like yeah. I'm like a super Dhamma nerd. Like I, I love having expanding my Dhamma library too. It's great. Well, Goenkaji was so like that, you know, I mean, it was such a characteristic of his. It's like, uh, you know, just kind of floating. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, you know, I have to thank you too. Cause, um, you, you set us up really well to meet, um, Biko Inalio. Yes, yes, yes. And, I was asking about that. And I mean, talk about buoyancy of mind and lightness. Yeah, like yeah. Inalio was, like incredible. It was almost like like touching a piece of history, like you know, like um like being in contact with a piece of history cuz yeah. you know, I hear about Manindraji, I hear about Deepama, like I hear about all these amazing, you know, teachers and then I I you know, we get the opportunity to meet Biko Analio and I was like, "Whoa, like this 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 guy, like there's nothing there." Yeah. You know, like I was I was looking at him in his eyes and I I forgot who I was like I didn't, I didn't know yeah, yeah. you know like I I just like Diego like all that all that stuff it was just gone and um my other friend Rodrigo who was also with us he he said it really well when after we left he was like man he was like he like there was nothing there for him but all we were doing was we were just projecting ourselves onto him mm, nice. and mm. and it was but from all that was coming from him was just joy. It was just compassion. It was just dhamma, and it was so um, energizing and inspiring for us. And it was funny because when when um, it was my myself, my wife, uh, my friend Rodrigo, and my friend Hannah, like we all got into the car together, and we you know brought the food that we were going to yeah. give to Analio. But in the car ride there, we were all really grumpy. 
<laughs> and, and I don't know why we were all so grumpy. And then when we get back into the car after we, you know, spent like an hour and 15 minutes with them, just like talking, talking Dhamma, we were all so happy, oh, like nice. so joyous. And we had such powerful meditations after that. And it was just like, it just felt like, talk about right action. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> well, really you know, I mean, good. it's really because you did it, you know, that, which is another great lesson in life because. First of all, I'm not a morning person at all, uh, which listeners of this podcast probably know by now. And, you know, when you said you wanted to come and, and offer him a meal, which would be a very, very classical thing to do with a Buddhist monk, and he lives right here in Barry. And and I thought, I thought he probably just eats one meal a day. And then I found that it was breakfast. And you're not like right around the corner either, you know. And then yeah, I thought, it was like a like a forty five minute drive. Yeah, I thought, God, they have to get up really early in the morning. I wonder. And and I said it in the most doleful way, like, "Are you sure you want to come? <laughs> like this is breakfast? You know, like it's kind of weird." And then when he, you know, the uh, director of that center, you know, wrote and he said, "You've got to be here even earlier," you know. <laughs> oh God. You know? <laughs> but you did it, which is the whole point. We have to kind of move, you know. Yeah, it's it's it was great, and I'm, I'm I'm deeply grateful to you for for making that happen for us. And um, I hope next time we come by, we get to hang out too. Yes, I hope so too. For goodness' sake! So I want to just talk briefly about the last section of your book. Um, the last section focuses on building a new kind of world, and I'd like to read this list of guiding lights you have in the book because they're a lovely way to approach community and connection with others. They are selflessly listening to each other sticking to our values, honoring other perspectives and ideas without becoming eternally attached to them, never allowing ourselves to dehumanize each other. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I feel like this, um, I had to really allow myself to be courageous for this end of the book. Um, I remember writing it and then reading it over and over again, and I really stuck my neck out there. Because um, oftentimes I find that people will want part of you, but they want they won't want all of you. You know, they'll they'll enjoy what you write about relationships, but they they don't want to hear what you have to say about the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, screw it. Like I'm just going to be totally myself, and I'm going to say what I want to say, um, and just be really honest about how we need a. S- we need to be able to balance the freedom of the individual with the respect of the collective. Um, because one thing I see in history is like, we just keep swaying into extremes where it's all about the individual and then the collective is totally ignored. And that just creates a lot of short sightedness and, you know, creates like this havoc that we have now, or you go to the other extreme where it's just the collective, the individual gets a race. And then you get situations where, you know, you get like gulags and like people are just getting, I don't know, um, killed in mass, and mm. it's quite horrifying. Um, so to be able to actively balance the two with this framework of structural compassion, that the point of it is to support human flourishing, is to support the uplifting of human dignity. And I wrote this chapter in a sense where, like, obviously, I don't have all the answers. Like, one person can't have all the answers. But what I wanted to do was just help start the um, the imaginative process of like even trying to like putting the term out there like structural compassion and allowing people to sort of build their own ideas around it because it's really going to be a collective effort if we're really going to try to um, you know even more deeply humanize this world um, but I did feel like it was important to put a few guiding lights because that's one thing you find in history over and over is the moment we start, dehumanizing each other, mm-hmm. it makes it easier to be violent towards each other. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for all of your work. And to close our conversation, could you lead us in some kind of reflection? Yeah, sure. Um, one thing that I've been holding myself to lately that I think is has been really valuable, and it might be valuable to you as well, is asking where can I slow down? Um, we often don't realize how the whole world is moving at a, such a fast, fast rate. And now with our cell phones and with our computers and with our televisions, 
the amount of information that's thrown at us um, is almost overwhelming. And all this information requires energy to consume. So we get super tired just consuming all of this information. Um, and not just like with what we're consuming, but how we're working, what we're doing in daily life. There should be some spaces where we can slow down because in our ability to slow down, we can better assess how aware we are in the moment, how present we're being, and if we're reacting harshly or not. So if you can, take the time to ask yourself, where can I move slower? Thank you so much for joining me today. To learn more about Diego's work, you can visit youngpueblo.com. It's Y-U-N-G-P-U-E-B-L-O.com. And please get a copy of his new book, Lighter, which is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. Sending my thanks to all of you who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast for the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.